you show a, a group of men a beautiful woman who's just totally, totally hot, like unbelievably good-looking woman with a beautiful body, you can go show men in Africa or Asia or the States or Australia this woman, and everyone's going to go, wow, she's mm-hmm. amazing. But with women, they're not like that at all. I mean, they sit around and go, I, I don't know what you see in that guy. Hello and welcome to Your Mileage May Vary. Uh, I'm your host, Mike, today. Uh, Keith is still in Cyprus, I believe, somewhere in Europe, but uh, I have a guest on uh, that we're going to talk with a bit and uh, about sex and relationships. Uh, it's Dr. Ricky Aronson, who uh, has written a book and has a podcast about uh, sex and relationships, but I will let Dr. Ricky introduce himself for the podcast. Ricky, are you here? Thanks, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, hello. I'm, I'm in Australia and living in Perth. Um, I'm an endocrinologist, which is a hormone specialist. We deal with glands, hormones, diabetes, but also sex hormones like testosterone and estrogen. I'm also head of a tertiary public hospital um, geriatric department. So I also have a specialty in geriatric medicine, which is looking after elderly people. So I've had a lot of experience with uh, elderly and younger relationships and dealing with 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 that in my in the professional space, but I guess my my real um, relationship experience in many ways has come from um, ascending in medical leadership and becoming a director of a hospital and running a huge department, and learning a lot about how to manage relationships better, and that really excited me, and I got more and more interested using that in some way that was fun and interesting for general relationships. That's great. And, uh, and I know you have a, a book you've written. Do you want to talk about that briefly? Oh, thank you. Well, I wrote a book called Women Are Superior to Men, um, which is perhaps a little misleading in the title because it's really more about the fact that in most marriages, men and women are different. They're often, if you speak to couples, they have the same kinds of fights about sex, about children, about housework. And often the male-female differences affect relationships in, in specific ways. And so I, I wanted to have a bit of fun with that. It's something that always fascinated me when I got married, that all our friends who were getting married were having the same fights as we were, same uh, male issues, the same female issues. And and that really interested me because we like to think we're so unique. And then you find that other people are having exactly the same problems that you are, the same, same arguments. And I guess what I wanted to do was bring something positive and fun into the space because there's just so much negativity about sexuality and gender. And I think a lot of confusion about what's healthy, what's normal, and there's almost um, negative propaganda about marriage and men and women. And for myself, I'm very lucky. I've got a wonderful wife of 20 years. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough to have a wonderful mother, and I think so many people do. So I wanted to celebrate that in the book. I wanted to bring some of my experience in managing relationships and under- my understanding about the dynamics of relationships and how they work. And, and I had a lot of fun with the fact that I – laughed at my own male inadequacies and the things that my wife finds irritating about me and I sympathized a lot with wives in the book and what they might find irritating about their husbands so it was really just having a lot of fun and it's it's been a really interesting experience going through that it's very different to medicine sure and we'll uh we will include uh links to Dr. Ricky's podcast and book in the show notes so people can check that out um uh if interested um so I so I didn't realize actually that you were uh, an endocrinologist. I have a couple questions I'd like to ask you about that. Now I'm mindful. I don't want to ask questions that reveal a 
complete lack of knowledge on my part because before the show we were talking about how uh, when a non-doctor talks to a doctor, uh, they sometimes reveal a complete lack of uh, knowledge, and that's sort of silly. Um, no, no, but- not, not, at, not at all, actually, on the contrary. <laughs> I was actually talking about doctors who ask questions and lectures that are, were medically unsound, but I, I don't expect any well, of my doctors. you. Yes, that was that oh. was what was difficult. Um, oh, okay. So no, I don't expect members of the public to know anything about medicine. and I mean, that's really my job, isn't it, to explain things and teach them and help them. Okay. So I have so yeah, a, a couple questions. Sure. Okay. Uh, so is the, is this, this is probably, a, maybe this is something that, where the answer is not actually known, but is the, uh, the thing that triggers an orgasm, uh, essentially hormonal? Is it a hormone that's released or is it some combination of other factors? Okay. So that's, that's a brilliant question. Actually, it's, it isn't quite like uh, there, there's there's more than one factor at play. So the first thing is that you actually have your autonomic nervous system, which is highly involved in triggering the neurological cascade of an of an orgasm. But when you have an orgasm, that triggers release of certain hormones that make you feel relaxed and happy. And I think one of the complaints of many wives is how easily their husbands go to sleep afterwards, which apparently for women isn't quite as easy, but you get wellness hormones that are released and make you feel nice. So most people after an orgasm feel quite relaxed and um, calm and good for a few minutes. And that is a hormonal issue, but the actual trigger of the orgasm itself is not hormonal. It's, it's neurological. I think I'm probably, probably the trigger of any release of hormones is neurological though. Uh, Maybe that's an oversimplification. Correct. But hormones themselves don't um, are not the cause of an orgasm as such. So you don't have like a rise in your testosterone levels or estrogen levels or something like that. So it isn't a hormonal trigger as such. It's a it's it's a sensory experience, and so that is very much around your neurological system. And then um, when you actually have an orgasm, so you release hormones that make you feel good. It's really quite magical. Okay. So yeah, and you mentioned right. You're saying make you feel good. So I would just I would. Just draw a subjective different distinction between the, you know, the feeling during the orgasm and the feeling that you have subsequent to it. And you talked about the the subsequent experience as like uh, for a man, it would make you feel happy and, and tired and that sort of thing, and maybe different for a woman. How about the actual feeling during the orgasm? Is that caused by a, a different hormone, the same hormone? Maybe no, that's that, not that's... known. I don't know. No, that's a neurological experience. So that's your, you, you know, that's a stimulation of certain nerves and and certain um, triggers that lead to various things contracting and moving and nerve. And it's, it's a neurological experience. But then sensation in life is essentially a neurological experience generally. So any pleasure or pain sensation is is um, generated by your neurology. It's influenced by often by mood and hormones. But the essential of it is that a a sensory experience is neurological. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, long-time listeners of the podcast probably know where I'm going with this, but I will ask you then. So does that mean that uh, – so it, to the extent that it was hormonal, there's a hormonal element to the experience, then one might say something like, look, there's only a limited supply of hormones in your body, which would uh, limit the duration or – number of times that you could orgasm duration of orgasm number of times you could orgasm are you are you suggesting then that that 
there there is no such limit for the sort of intense pleasurable part of an orgasm. In, in other words, a person should not be suspicious of somebody who says, "Look, I've orgasmed fifty times in two hours," because that because that since it's neurological, that could happen. I think you should be suspicious of such a person, but um, for different reasons. I don't know how, how, how possible that is. But yeah, look, um, women have a different, um, a slightly different pathway. So they're more capable of having uh, multiple orgasms. Not all women are, but some women are. Men, it's much more difficult because there's a certain uh, process that they need to go under to get another erection, basically, and to be ready for sex again. Most of that, again, is not particularly hormonally mediated. But, um, you know, people who have higher testosterone levels, men who have higher testosterone levels are more likely to have higher sex drives and men who have low, abnormally low sex, uh, uh, testosterone levels are going to have lower sex drives. So man with, so there's some hormonal component in that. A man who's got low testosterone levels generally has lower libido and, you know, one orgasm is probably going to be more than enough for them. And in some cases, they may not even be interested in that. But the overall issues around, multiple orgasms are again to do with the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems not to do with with hormones as such all right so in principle then you would say that and i realize yeah there are reasons there are many reasons to be suspicious of such a person uh claiming although we've had people make claims like this some 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 very sort of extreme claims sounds, about sounds very exhausting actually yeah i agree i agree there's there, there are various reasons to be suspicious but uh from your perspective I, the, the only and the, the reason why I bring this up is because the only other sort of analog here, uh, analogy here would be to somebody like using a drug, right? You would need to use a drug uh, to to uh, for that long of a duration uh, have have sort of such a um, pleasurable experience, or uh, and so and so uh, it seems suspicious that a person's body would be able to regenerate repeatedly. Uh, such a such a, a pleasurable high. Although to be fair, well, I don't know. I was going to say a person can be in pain for a long period of time, so maybe there's no reason to suspect that pleasure couldn't last that long. Uh, and I think that's what you're saying. Like, if, given that it's a neurological phenomenon, that but remember, alone is for not men, a reason to be suspicious. But remember, there is there is a reason for a physiological difference in that, and that is that for men, um, orgasm does actually involve the release of semen. And there's a certain physical requirement for that and to sort of load up the barrels again and, you know, reload the gun. You actually are genuinely loading up, you know. So it, it's, it involves seminal fluid from your prostate. It involves actual semen. So for men, there is something more physical that is required than just the release of the neurological orgasm. So you can understand why for men there's – the reloading of the gun can be a bit more complicated than for women where really if they're on a certain sexual high, it is possible for some of them to have more than one orgasm in that situation. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense and comports, I think, with most people's uh, experience with some women, at least, that, that, that there are there is something that goes on there that doesn't seem as possible or perhaps possible at all for men. Um a second question about uh, relating to hormones, and you you stepped into it just there. I mean, I'm in I'm in the United States, which might have a diff somewhat different culture around this. Although I detected some content in your podcast that suggested you were a little nervous, at least about um, stereotyping or something like that. Do you ever fall into the trap of somebody getting upset because you suggest that a man is a person 
who releases semen, meaning like, and, and, I, and I bring this up, I bring this up also in terms of like your, your experience with hormones might mean that you've had, you've been exposed to the sort of transgender debate and uh, hormone blockers and the like, but I'm just curious how that, how that whole debate operates uh, for you as a doctor in Australia. Yeah, look, it's it's a very difficult um, issue. Um, it's one that I'm very concerned about because it appears to me that uh, medical boards and medical associations around the world are playing politics rather than science. And I think that when you have doctors declaring that biology doesn't exist and that they have no regard for biology, that's a very problematic stance for medical experts to take because really we're there to treat patients as and, and that's based on on biology and science and we have normal levels for men and normal levels for women and you know when we are when we're seeing patients it's incredibly relevant whether someone has xy chromosomes or x x chromosomes in in in, a, in an enormous number of different um uh, uh contexts and and in terms of diagnosis and all sorts of things that that, that affects so yes australia is going the same way as the states we are definitely not as divided in the sense that america is having this sort of brutal cultural war between what I would say work, call woke and conservative. I don't know, you might call it something different. I think it's, sure. it's, it's, it's a fascinating issue. I was, I was actually, I'm right at the heart of this in many ways because I am a very outspokenly politically incorrect person. And no, I'm not at all afraid of, of stereotypes. In fact, I dispute on my podcast that many stereotypes are negative at all. I think that there are many things about men and women that are part of an innate, beautiful design to attract us to each other, to make our relationships work and for very specific genetic evolutionary purposes because there's no pretending that, you know, we're designed to survive. And for that to happen, uh, we have to find each other sexually attractive men and women and we have to um, succeed in reproduction, which involves a XY chromosome male fertilizing an XY chromosomal female and until very recently that had to be through an act of of sex and so i don't have a problem with these things i think one of the the difficulties of this debate is there's so much propaganda that has become accepted for example you don't have to call something normal to accept it uh, you, you don't to be tolerant doesn't mean that we all have to be the same in fact tolerance is all about tolerating people who are different i don't have to tolerate people the same as me because they're the same as me there's nothing to tolerate so it's actually this idea that we all have to be the same and say the same thing to tolerate each other is actually a perversion of what tolerance actually is so from my point of view saying that most marriages deal with certain male female differences doesn't prejudice against people who are different so there are some men who like arranging flowers and wearing pink ribbons in their hair, fantastic. There's some women who want to lift weights and arm wrestle truckies, great. But that's not the case in most marriages. And I don't think that we should be embarrassed to talk about what the average marriage faces because, you know, there's there's not just millions, there are billions of people out there who are married and, you know, we want them to be happy. And it's got nothing to do. And I think the analogy I draw is very simple. It's this. If I write a book about how to play golf better, I'm not doing that to say that I dislike tennis players or think that they are there's something wrong with them. But it doesn't stop me writing a book to help golfers play better golf. And so I, I'm not embarrassed to promote positive heterosexual relationships and what's important about that. I am very concerned, though, that this, this war, this cultural war, has started to corrupt what we understand as democratic principles. Because there is, I, I could give you a long speech about this, I won't, but there's... There's, there's a lot of 
simple democratic principles that we have held dear in Western democracies for a long time that have built the civilization that has given us wonderful lives. And those principles are being severely compromised by what is now called progressive politics, but I actually think it's regressive politics because it's about removing freedom of speech. It's actually against women's rights and it's against democracy, which is really about equality and fairness, one person, one vote. Those are the things we're losing in the name of certain political agendas. And I'm very troubled by that because I think those principles shouldn't be compromised. So yeah, you, you, you know, you, you've, I'm, I'm very much in the space. And, and the sad thing is I have to be very careful what I say because I want to keep my job. So some things that sure. I know to be true, I just can't say. And that's, I think, the situation many people are in around the world. Yeah, I, uh, I'm very, yeah, I, I, I uh, tend to be uh, toward your side of the spectrum, so I'm not sure we would differ much there. But the uh, um, the specific thing that you mentioned about uh, feminism uh, is something that I've spoken to some women about. Uh, and it is true that there's a uh, an aspect of this, which is essentially men usurping uh uh, women's women's roles in certain ways and kind of like second classing women by basically either becoming women where you have like the the case with <clears throat> the very famous cases here with with men who uh, tra- uh, transition and then start competing in sports um, <clears throat> or uh, kind of invade their spaces and their their kind of their reality uh, in those kinds of ways that basically make it so you can't uh, uh, there's no way to there's no way to talk kind of in general terms about men and women and and learn about how we are different uh, because because you, you're not supposed to talk about pe- people in generalities at all. Um, I'm curious if you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, if, go ahead. if I can just interject there, I mean, I find mm-hmm. I find that is also a very sad piece of propaganda because human beings by nature are designed to. Look to understand generalities. It's how we understand the world. We order everything around us. You know, we have scientific tables, and we, you know, in medicine, things are categorized. In our lives, we we recognize patterns in the way people behave and the way that they think and move. When you're socializing, you are observing. You're using pattern recognition and generalities to observe the people around you. You know, this is generally how someone behaves when they're angry or upset or shy. And you and everything we do in life is about observing. Patterns, pattern recognition is required for survival. So even if you're you're out hunting, you need to recognize if a sound's different, if a movement's different. And you see even dogs are very interesting. They often if someone's limping on the field, they'll take notice. They're like, look at that person, like, wow, that's a pattern. It's a different pattern. So we we're designed for pattern recognition. And to make that into something negative against people is just um to me, it's just insanity, to be honest. I think it's just perverting reality. There is a reality out there. and I mean, I'm amazed when I watch videos of American women saying that men are not stronger than women. I mean, you can go look at the track times, you can look <laughs> at the swimming times, you can look at the weightlifting. Sure. You know, I go to gym. I'm not the biggest guy, but there's very, I, I very seldom encountered women in gym who lift heavier weights than me. Now, there are some in the world, sure, but by in the average marriage, the man is physically stronger than his wife. That's the way we designed it. Women have amazing qualities often that men don't have. So I think it, it, it's it's sad that we feel the need to deny reality in the name of politics and political ideology. I'm, I'm very troubled by that. Sure. Yeah. And also, it, it's uh, <clears throat> ironically, I think, for folks that uh, support or claim to support science, I think it's actually anti the scientific method because the point of the scientific method ultimately is to, as you said, I mean, the same idea to to recognize and identify patterns. 
Uh, and so just because something may not be one, true 100% of the time, you can say, hey, this is true 95% of the time, and that's an important pattern to be aware of. But if you start saying, look, everybody's a snowflake and to- or, you know, a unique snowflake and totally different, then that's pretty anti-science. You can't talk generally. We, we, we run into that <clears throat> somewhat frequently with comments and feedback we get from our podcast because we will say things. We try to sort of you know, notate during the podcast that we're, we're saying in general, this is how it is. And obviously there are exceptions, but people still get upset because they don't want any, any generalities to be brought up. And it's like, well, then there's nothing to talk about. There's no, there's no conversation. Yeah, I mean, possible that's right. This. I mean, we, with the way we use language is generality as well, isn't it? I mean, the words we use aren't actually right. very precise. They all, everything we do is about generality, but so I, I agree with you. And I think one of the saddest things that's happened in the world with these issues has been that we used to understand that coming together was actually about coming together, you know, but you bring people sure. together by bringing them together. Now with all this identity politics, what we're doing is pulling everyone apart and we're looking for reasons to fight. You know, you're not using the right language because from my point of view and from your point of view, probably if you want to, if you don't like generalities, don't use them. I don't have a problem with that. If you want to say men and women are the same, if that's relevant in your life, go for it. But for me, that's not the reality that I see. And so tolerance actually should go both ways. And that's what we're not seeing. We have the sort of one way of looking at things. And if you don't look at at things that way, you're a bad person. You know, you're a transphobe and a racist and a sexist. But actually, no, you might care deeply about other human beings, all of them, but you have a different perspective, a different way of looking at things. So I think that's one of the saddest things is that tolerance should go both ways. That's what tolerance actually is. Um, one more thing on that, this topic, given that you have this, this expertise that I'm curious to, 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 and I think our listeners probably be curious to get more insight from, uh, so hormone blockers for children is a big fight and debate here in the United States. There are certain States that are banning it, uh, as a practice for children who want to transition, uh, saying, oh, you, you should wait till the kid is an adult and so forth. Are there, uh, irreversible uh, or is it known whether there are irreversible uh, consequences of, say, like a, a 13-year-old, a 12-year-old? There, there are kids in my, my – I have a kid in middle school, and there are kids, there are, there are kids in the school who believe that they are the other gender. Uh, and I, I have no reason to doubt their belief, but, I mean, they're just so young. It's hard to know if they but, – but, but maybe. Maybe, they're, maybe they know. Anyway, I'm just curious about in terms of the medical side of it, is, is, is that – yeah. Are there irreversible or is it deeply problematic or is it the kind of thing where you say, look, you know, just try it out and <laughs> see how you like it? Look, I'll, I'll be honest and say that I'm a person who believes that the age of consent in medicine is actually there for a good reason. And the reason for that is that children and adolescents don't have the experience and perspective that adults often have. They, they make emotional decisions. They're not mature. They haven't had time to experience things. and they are you know emotionally labile by nature teenagers are very hormonal and emotional and we try and protect them from making decisions that may have lasting impact on their lives and it's not to oppose if they're trans wanting to be trans it's more about the fact that you really want to be sure that someone that's making that decision is making it for the right reasons and it's going to be a decision that, that they don't regret 10 years down the line so in answer to your question most definitely Puberty is there for a reason, and there's a lot of issues around bone development and other issues that happen that if you block puberty or manipulate things with hormones, you do get different medical outcomes. And I think depending on what you're doing, the the greatest issue is that um, 
sterility is for life. And if you sterilize someone, you know, it used to be that it was that that we considered evil when people went and sterilized kids for any reason. Um, so you really want to make sure if you're doing that, that you're doing it for the right reasons. Because if someone looks back 10 years later and decides, hey, I made a bad decision, they're now stuck in a in an awful medical situation and they may be sterile. So um, again, it seems that this has become a political football, but I go back to principles. The principle of of the age of consent should be applied consistently in medicine. It doesn't matter whether it's for an appendix removal appendix or whether it's for, you know, blocking puberty, these things, um, you know, there are many reasons that teenagers make rash decisions. And we have to, in some way, also protect them from doing lasting damage to themselves. And, and the issue here is that there really isn't great medical evidence um, that guides these decisions. So we've been a lot more cautious in other areas of medicine where we've really done first do no harm. If we're not sure about the outcome of a treatment, we want to be very careful about giving it to people. Here we have a situation where, I think, very driven by politics, we really don't have such a great idea about uh, mental, psychological, and physical outcomes in the long term. There haven't been great studies, long-term studies, that tell us this treatment works better at this age, in this specific circumstance. But any doctor or psychologist who argues with whatever is the, you know, fashionable way of doing it at a hospital is, is told that they're transphobic and, and and threatened with being fired. So I think that's not a way that we normally do the scientific method. It's not the way medicine normally runs. And I, I think with these things, it's not about compassion or tolerance because, of course, we care about all our patients, whether they you know, male, female, or trans, whatever they are. We want them to get the best outcome. But the question is, what will give them the best outcome in what circumstances? And that needs a lot of study and a lot of careful analysis. And you can't do that analysis if you have a political agenda that's highly aggressive and preventing reasonable discussion. And so so all these things concern me greatly, yes. Sure. Uh, yeah, and of course, <clears throat> the age of consent, while important, if you are in the area, as, as you live in the area around San Francisco, as I do, um, sometimes that doesn't really matter because you have parents who uh, perhaps... Uh, even uh, almost fetishize the notion that their own kid might be trans. So in other words, they would certainly consent F in their kid's stead. Um, I'm curious uh, if you have an opinion or if there's any data on this of uh, what percentage, because trans is, I, I think trans is likely to be a thing. It's likely to be a, a, a I realize there are people who are intersex and born, you know, born different. Uh, what, what, per, but my, okay. What percentage of, of people do you think absent a political agenda would actually, uh, want to transition their gender? Is it like under, my, my, my thought is it's like one in 10,000 or something like that, but I, you, you, I'm sure know much better than I do. Well, I, I don't know with these, with this kind of data, I don't really know where we're going to go with this because I think we're living in very different times now where you have, you know, schools around the world that are strongly promoting Sure. Um, this ideology that non-binary is a fact and that trance is normal. And, and, and so it's very difficult to know how that kind of cultural and educational shift will affect everyone. So as things stand at the moment, my understanding, and it may not be the same for every country, is that the average sits around 0.5% of the population being trans. Oh, okay. that's, the data, that's the data that I've come across, which is one in, one in 200 people. I don't okay, think that that's, that's a higher. fact. I don't think that's yeah. I don't think that's a fact. I think that you'd find that different populations have 
um, you know, different. And, and of course, you know, one has to acknowledge that this is influenced by culture and socialization because if you live in, you know, I come from South Africa. And in Africa, I don't know that there are a lot of countries in Africa where no one would dare tell anyone they were trans, even if they felt that way. So you, again, you don't know what the data will look like, and it will be influenced by socialization and culture for sure. Is that, uh, I noticed that you <clears throat> are from South Africa. Uh, you mentioned that, I think, in your podcast. Have you, Do you just have a thing for the Southern Hemisphere? You just don't, because you, you've been there, you've been in Australia, just, you just don't want uh, Christmas to, you don't want a, uh, a cold Christmas. That's very, very funny. Um, I actually did live in the UK for a period, so um, okay. no, it, it's, I, I, but I think there is some truth in what you've asked, even though I think it's a flippant question. Um, the, the, the thing is that South Africa, the South African lifestyle is very similar to Australia, so a lot of South Africans have migrated here because it's a sunny outdoor lifestyle. We play the same sport. We have very similar outdoor culture. We like barbecues. We like, you know, the kind, the same kinds of things. So it's less of a cultural adaptation to move from South Africa to Australia. Whereas my understanding is, I think, I'm, I'm, I mean, the States are very diverse. United States, very diverse country because it's just so massive and you'd find very sure. different cultures in different regions. But I do think even in an average American city, that people from South Africa find that more of a cultural, um, a cultural challenge than coming to Australia. Sure. And do, do they play Australian rules football in South Africa? No, but we play cricket. We play rugby. Cricket union, and we play, rugby. Yeah. Okay. Um, soccer. So yeah, and, and and cricket and rugby are big, and they're big sports in both countries. I believe the number one sport in Australia, though, is is football, footy. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, that's correct. Yeah, it's, it's whereas it's in South massive, Africa, it's, it's probably like a religion. right. It's it's in South Africa. I imagine it's something else. Okay, I wanted I wanted to ask you some bring up some some topics that I got from from listening to some episodes of your podcast. A little lighter topics. Um, you mentioned yeah, because we've been very we've been very hot and heavy. We just met and we've yes. just spoken about heavy, heavy political issues. Yes, exactly. So you mentioned that you 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 had a topic where you talked about penis size and you said, and I'm, I, this is anybody sort of who spends time thinking about this stuff knows that it, it doesn't particularly matter to women unless it's unusual in one direction or the other. But then you said that the penis usually doesn't get fully inserted anyway during sex. And I was curious about that. Uh, what, so doesn't get fully inserted. So what, what, what do you mean by that? And, uh, so, you know, it suggests that men sort of aren't using their full penis how does a man, full, man fully insert his penis and why is it not getting fully inserted? I think that's well, what you for said. A lot of, Yeah, for a lot of men, first of all, um, it's interesting, but sort of during this very sort of gross sort of discussion in terms of not gross, disgusting, but sort of very uh, um, sort of nuts and bolts. But um, first of sure. all, the male penis is often longer than the length of a vagina. So um, even though men probably think that they're in the whole length, they're actually not. Um so and it, and so, if you, I mean, there's certain sexual positions where you've got to have a bit of distance between, you know, the the, the beginning of the shaft and the woman because the position doesn't enable you to get right up, you know, anyhow. So, but for for many women, there's just not enough. A male penis length may be longer than the actual length that needs to be inserted, um, and during sex itself. Not the whole thing is a man thrusting his whole length into a woman. That tends to happen close to orgasm. Men 
instinctively want to thrust deeper, um, which makes sense for um, fertilization, if you think about it that way. Um, so, yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I think we, we all know that there's great diversity of, of penis size. And, you know, I had some male friends at school uh, who, you know, they would have had to have sex with, you know, a blue whale to insert the whole length of their penis into anything. You know, there were some guys out there who are very well hung individuals. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, so that, I mean, that's just a reality of, of physics. <laughs> Is that enough. because in, in in college you would compare erect penises with other men? No, no, I wouldn't do that. But um, you know, well, in but South how would Africa, you know? We, well, we Go didn't on. compare yeah. erect. We didn't compare erect penises. <laughs> no, I, I didn't. Look, I'm not casting any aspersions on people who do, but I certainly never sure. did that. I mean, but you know, you in South Africa we played rugby, and then afterwards you all went for a shower. Um, sure. And so, you know, men were hanging out naked together in changing rooms. I don't know if they do that in the States anymore, but we certainly in South Africa, there was no, uh, you know, the male changing room was lots of male naked bodies walking around. And, you know, there's some guys that are shorter and some guys that are longer. And then there's some guys that are just, you know, abnormally, they, they, their father was a horse and their mother never told them. I don't know. Um, so, right. uh, so you're so, yeah, presuming, and, and we do, we, we do have a, uh, the at least uh, adults typically uh, uh, shower in sort of in the same kind of context here, uh, but you, you're assuming that the length of the flaccid penis correlates with the length of the erect penis, and that's something that people always sort of caution about, right? That that some you know that there isn't necessarily a correlation, but maybe actually maybe there is a correlation. Is there is there a correlation? Well, I, I mean there there is a correlation because I mean you know going into the details i mean i had a friend who had like a 20 centimeter flaccid penis so i mean many men don't reach 20 centimeters when they're erect so whatever he he did when he was erect it was certainly longer than someone who had a you know 10 centimeter flaccid penis you know never made it to 20 centimeters so i I think there there's certainly evidence that that there is some what more evening out that most men when erect are more similar in size than they expect and, and men with smaller penises tend to get bigger erections and Men with very large penises often there's, you know, they only have got so much blood in their body, they've got to stay conscious, you know. If you put all the blood in yeah, there, you know, it's, <laughs> they'll pass out. So um, so I think there is some degree of evening out, but certainly there would be still some correlation, and I would think the average very large flaccid penis is going to be still bigger than the average very small flaccid penis. So, But it's just the, sure. the, 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 different, the difference is much less. Okay, and for our American audience, 20 centimeters. It's, it's actually, it's more fun to say your penis is 20 centimeters just because the number is bigger. That's, it's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of fun. But for, for us here in the US, it's uh, that's nine, around nine eight inches. inches. Nine, no, it's around yeah, eight. I, I, okay. Maybe it's nine. I tried to do a, a conversion on the computer here, but I, I might've mistyped. No, no, no. Um, it could be eight. It could be eight point something. Yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, that's, yeah, that is a, a pretty, a pretty large pretty large penis and you're right i mean obviously if it's a certain size non-erect there's it's hard for it to shrink when it becomes erect in any meaningful way so that 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 would be uh, yes and i have to tell you that um, i still have nightmares because i was at this guy's house he has a good friend of mine and he um took a shower and i had a bath at the same time um we didn't think much of that at the time and suddenly this thing emerged from the shower while i was still bathing and i still haven't quite I had 10 years of therapy to try to get over that. Um, but there is a very funny story about this friend of mine and his 20-centimeter member. 
And that is okay. um, the same guy, true story. He went for a swim in his swimming pool um, naked. And he had a little courtyard at the back of his house. And his house was along the route to our school. And all the school kids used to walk past the house going both directions after school. And halfway through his swim, he realized that his parents had gone out for the day and he was locked in the courtyard. And he was faced with the two prospects. He either spent an entire day in the courtyard naked with just um, no food, no water and, and nothing to do, or he had to climb naked onto his roof to climb through his bedroom window. And he eventually decided that he, he had to climb through the window. So we, we did write a song at school about him in Afrikaans, which is the language we spoke, which, which translates to naked butt on the roof. But um, he was always known for that. So he was the right guy to climb on the roof to impress the, the neighborhood. And many people going to and from school, unfortunately, did spot him on his roofs and informed us at school the next day. So quite a dramatic story that. How does one Probably say a- na- naked butt on the roof in Afrikaans? Kal hat op die dak. But it's a, bit of, it's a bit of slang, but that was our song. If there's any Afrikaners cool. listening to the, this podcast, they will be laughing right now, I can promise you. <laughs> it's a slangy way of writing a song, basically. Sure. Um, you mentioned also that, you're, that, that your wife will tell you to put your penis away because it's not attractive. Does that really happen? Yeah, look, um, you know, I was just saying that when women... I've never had that happen. You're a lucky man. So when wives walk around naked around the house, I think most men are very delighted by that. But, um, you know, if I happen to be naked, my wife will always say, hey, put that thing away before it hurts some, someone or something like that. Um, so no, I'm not, not encouraged by my family to walk around naked at all. Um, so, uh, huh. you know, I, I actually, I must tell you, I grew up in a family which was like a nudist colony. My my parents were like all natural all the time. And everyone just walked around naked in my house. And that was just considered normal. But I've come across families that are very different. And, um, for example, we've got friends and the mother said that she would never, ever have been seen naked by her kids at any age, ever. And she wouldn't even bath with them when they were babies. I mean, my wife used to love bathing with, with our kids when they were little. It was like their highlight. They used to paint uh, soap pictures on each other's backs and chat about the day till you know, they were four or five years old that there was a great mother-child bonding time. But... I know that some people really don't like that idea at all. Well, here we, uh, <clears throat> I remember distinctly some women here when my children were younger <clears throat> near San Francisco where they were still breastfeeding uh, four and five-year-olds and they would be doing it on the side of the sideline of the soccer game. Not not exactly the same thing, but some kind of yes, you know, physical um, Yes, I've, I've seen that as well. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that as well. I, I do think there's a time for kids to stop breastfeeding, but um, that's just my lowly opinions. Right. Um, <clears throat> okay, so yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I've ever been told to put it away, but that, that makes sense. It's ne- it's de- I, I agree that objectively it's less attractive, uh, and <laughs> that makes sense. Um, you talk well, about... When, uh, when I was at... When, yep. Go ahead. When I was at university, I... I, I, I f- I read a magazine and it said, why are men's magazines full of scantily clad women and women's magazines are also full of scantily clad women? And then it said, that's because men's have, men have hairy, lumpy bodies that not, should not be seen by the light of day was the answer to that. So I, I don't know that everyone agrees. Um, I know a lot of women in Australia love Chris Hemsworth and probably find his lumpy body very attractive, but um, I've always laughed about that. 
Um, yeah, I don't. But, I mean, uh, I don't completely I, agree with that. Like, if you're watching, uh, I mean, I'm I'm heterosexual, but if you're watching, say, uh, uh, like an Olympic swimming competition with the men, their bodies are pretty impressive. You know, so so the, a yeah, man's body absolutely. can be very impressive, but it's it's different. It's it requires a lot of <laughs> a lot of work to get there to have an impressive body as a man. And I think that uh, it's essentially unreasonable for somebody to argue that women's bodies are not objectively more attractive. Like they're designed to be more attractive than men's bodies. I agree with you there. That's it's it's. Oh, um, I, was, I was just joking. I was just joking. I mean, when sure, I see I myself in the mirror, when I see myself in the mirror, I'm, I mean, I'm like an Adonis. I'm very attracted to that body. But I'm, I'm um, sure it's just convincing yeah. women to feel the same. That's the greater challenge. <laughs> sure, you're like ah, this this guy's this guy's really attractive. Why doesn't every woman uh, just swoon when he walks by? Um, you mentioned. And by the uh, way, that doesn't work well yep. with wives. By the way, that doesn't work well with wives. So, so man, I I'm I actually am very fit. I'm a huge fitness nut, and I go to gym and. I'm, um, I, I mean, not arrogantly, but I'm fairly well built for a man of almost fifty. I work very hard on my body, and my wife sure. always says to me, "Hey, you know, I like, like, hey, look, look how thin I am, or you know, look at this muscle." And she's like, "You know, you do this for yourself. I, I, I you know, I, I, I love you the way you are. I don't need you to go to the gym and you know get buffed. It's not something that I'm asking you to do. So, no, I don't get much attention for that, and I don't think telling." wives and girlfriends that other women give you attention for it appeals much to them either like hey you might not appreciate my biceps but i know someone who does there are men that do that and it's, it, it really irritates their their girlfriends and wives it's definitely not a line i recommend but um certainly uh, uh my wife uh, always says to me look she doesn't mind if i go to gym less um it wouldn't bother her it doesn't uh one one line of reasoning that I could see happening there with a with a wife would be, um, if if you as a man make yourself more attractive, um, you there is some competition element, right? I mean, it could impress other women, and in that sense, it could provoke a not an angry response, but just a uh, competitive response from your wife, right? I mean, she's she she becomes starts feeling more attracted to you just because you know she she feels like oh I need to. I need to make sure that he that, that I'm still his primary woman. That nobody's able to swoop in here. So if that does that make sense? Well, I think that's well, I think that's what irritates women often when husbands and boyfriends do try and tell their their female partners, "Oh, you know, this nurse was chatting me up at work or something," because they're like, "Hey, it doesn't impress me that you were faithful. You know, it's the primary form of trust that we have in our relationship. You fulfilling that." most primary obligation in our relationship isn't very impressive. But I think there is an element of it that um, I think women are on average a little less preoccupied often within marriage with the parents than men are. I mean, that's a, the nature of men and women. Men are extremely visual. And women, whilst they're visual, I mean, you know, they're actors out there that women swoon over and they want to go watch that guy on the screen. They're, women are often quite practical in marriage. They, they, they might get sexually excited about things that are different to men. Um, so for women often, so I'll give you a funny example. Um, it, there's, there's actually quite a big study that shows that the only people who are having more sex, or, or what's happened over the last, which is fascinating over the last 20 or 30 years, is that the sexual frequency of couples has actually gone down in Western mm -hmm. democracies, which seems to be counterintuitive because sex has become such a blasé thing. You know, it's in, in our parents' time, if you felt pregnant, you were thrown out the house and it was the most disgraceful thing in the world. And now, you know, sex is like people move in with each other, they're having sex, no one cares. It's like just part of life. So, and yet sexual frequency has actually gone down. 
But the only couples that are having more sex or equal amount of sex to before are couples that share the domestic load very evenly. So, so men who are actually helping their wives more at home are getting more sex than men who are not helping their wives at home. And so I think, you know, that's, that's a very interesting statement. Um, I think there's many complexities to that because I think if you have a positive relationship, helping each other is positive. And so if you're in everything together, you're spending more time together, you're going to have more sex. You know, if, you, if, the, if the guy's at work all the time, he's not at home, he never comes home and helps his wife. He's not going to get much sex because he's not around. So if you're actually close, working together, doing everything together. So I think there's a closeness element to that. There's a teamwork element. And I think it's a reflection often of a very positive relationship where the man cares deeply about what his wife wants and the wife cares deeply about what her husband wants. And that then is a stimulus to, to better sex lives. It's just an interesting you know, observation. Sure. And within, within that study, there were even statements from women who said, well, you know, if, if I'm sitting up watching the dishes till 10 p.m., I come home to bed very tired. I'm not in the mood for sex. If my husband actually helped me, I'd come to bed an hour earlier. So, and I wouldn't be resentful. So, there's lots of there's lots of elements to it. It's just I do think that often what women find attractive in men is not identical always for many couples. Men are very very visually stimulated creatures, and if you look at that as a taste in the opposite sex, you'll see that very strongly as well. Because for men, you show a, a group of men a beautiful woman who's just totally totally hot like unbelievably good looking woman with a beautiful body you can go show men in africa or asia or the states or australia this woman and everyone's going to go wow she's mm-hmm. amazing but with women they're not like that at all i mean they sit around and go I-, I don't know what you see in that guy i mean i had dinner with a woman the other day she said tom cruise is not attractive at all never was you know tom cruise has got when she was she's a, a woman of my age so she was watching him when he was 25 30 she said not attractive. Don't don't know what women see in him. And then you have you know you have these very diverse discussions when women are all telling each other. You know I don't know what you see in him. I, I just don't see it. And women are clearly often attracted to other things. You know, wealthy, powerful men often have beautiful girlfriends. Um, that's a fact of life. People may not like it, but it's it's still a fact of life. So it's clear that women are much more diverse in what they find attractive. Men are very very visual. They like beautiful women. Sure. And I think there's some societal resentment about that now, but it's, it, it still is the way that we wired. On that topic of men and women sharing the load, and yeah, I agree, although I, I do think that uh, Tom Cruise is objectively very attractive, uh, as a, even as a hetero guy. I can, I can see that, but, but fair, yeah. fair enough. Like, I, like I, I agree. Him as well. Yeah, I just think he's, I, he's a pretty weird guy, but I think he's physically, it's like, huh, that's, that guy's pretty handsome. Uh, in terms of sharing the load, is your intuition that, uh, or maybe there's data on? I don't know how if you necessarily could have data that the, that the causation goes that direction. In other words, a man helping sharing the load leads to more sex, or that the that it's the other direction. Because I could see it being the other direction that basically uh, having more sex makes the guy want to help out more because he he is more. Uh, He's happier with his partner, basically. Any thoughts on that? I, I mean, I think for each couple it's different, but certainly I think it okay. goes both ways. So the, the ideal relationship is between two people who want to take care of each, of each other's needs. And so for if, if a husband has a much higher libido than his wife and his wife you know, just goes, well, I'm not interested, 
that is a problem for that relationship because the man is going to be frustrated all the time. And you're quite right. It, it does lead to resentment and it's, it is a physical need that, you know, men have. So it's not about lack of consent. It's not about, I think that's one of the saddest thing about this discussion, not from you, but from the world at the moment is to imply that this is an issue of men, you know, wanting to, you know, take advantage of women or if they want sex, they just demand it. And why shouldn't the woman be allowed to say no? I think that's a very negative spin on a relationship because really in a relationship there are things that men want to do there are things that women want to do their needs that each have that are different and the ideal relationship is where both partners care deeply about satisfying the needs of the other whatever they may be so i might not care that much about whether the dishes are clean or not but if i know that my wife cares if i care about her surely i care about doing something to help her so that she's not miserable and frustrated and tired so i think we all we're here to help each other take care of each other and within that equation sex is one of those things. I think, I mean, I think in an ideal world, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if all married couples had exactly the same sex drive? You know, that would be great. But that's not reality in, in most couples. You know, you're not going to have identical libidos. And then the question is, how do you work through that together to make sure that both partners are happy? And that's not just about the woman always giving sex to a man when she doesn't want to, because then she's going to become, you know, resentful about sex and, you know, see it as a chore and it becomes a negative relationship issue as well. So that's, you know, the nuances in coupledom. How do you how do you work that out? How do you make the woman happy? How do you make the man happy? What do the two of you need to do to make that relationship work and to, to get the best out of each other and also for both people to be happy? Sure. What about what about um situations where the <clears throat> so the, I mean there's a bit of a presumption there, and I think this is the more common case that the man has a higher libido. But we've talked to people, and actually my co-host Keith has often been in relationships where he is the one with the lower libido, uh, which I imagine creates a separate kind of challenge, right? Because then, well, it's yeah, it creates a separate kind of challenge. Is there is there some equivalent uh, to sharing the sharing the load? I guess I guess if the man were doing the majority of the housework, then you could actually imagine kind of an inversion of more traditional gender roles there, but. Let's assume that's not the case. I mean, is there something? Is there is there something or, that a that a woman can do that's kind of analogous to that? Uh, if if the husband or the boyfriend has a lower libido, or is it just kind of a maladaptive situation that's hard to fix? <coughs> Look, I think that's a very complex question again because it depends what the underlying situation is. So, firstly, the majority of couples in the world, if a man has normal testosterone levels. In, in an average couple, men have higher libidos than women. You see that played out in society all the time, men pursuing women for sex sure. um, all over the world in, in high school. In, and, and that's if you think about mammals, that's the same as other mammalian species. I mean, the, the men are fighting each other to get the women, and the women are standing around looking a little less excited about the whole thing. doesn't mean women don't enjoy sex, but we are designed to pursue women. I mean, that's how right. we survive as a species. And, species and we do have higher libidos on average because we've got high testosterone levels. But of course, humans are diverse and different. And there are many couples where women have higher sex drives than men. There's no question that that exists in the world. Um, and in that construct, um, it really depends what the underlying issue is. So is it, you do get women, first of all, who are who actually have sexual issues, that they are sex addicts, so to speak, where they have this unquenchable need to have sex all the time. For, for deep emotional problematic reasons, you get women that are just very naturally, normally, healthily, highly sexed women. Um, and those are, you know, great kind to have. Um, and, uh, you know, 
there are men who have lower sex drives because they just are a man who has a lower sex drive, but they're normal. And then you get many of medical issues, so low testosterone causing low sex drive, and then you know they'd want to go on treatment. So I guess it all depends on what the situation is. It is a little bit more difficult in some ways for men because I think there is a stigma, and I think many men do feel a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit, let's say, embarrassed if they're with a partner who wants to have sex and they can't do it. Because for men, to get an erection, you need to have desire. And if you can't quite stimulate that, it, it can be difficult because technically that's a necessary aspect of having sex. Whereas with women, you know, there are lubricant, lubricants that can be used if things aren't working that well. So, that, you know, you can get around that. But with men, you can't. Um, so I think for men, it's a technically can be a more difficult issue. So nowadays, men, a lot of, you know, older men who are in relationships with younger women who are more highly sexed than them, they get the Viagra-type medications. There are a few different kinds. Um, but it, it is a challenge to work through either way. So if, 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 if the woman is unsatisfied in the relationship, that's as much of a problem as a man being unsatisfied. It's equally problematic. So I think, it, you know, it's okay. something that the couple would have to work through. So, you, so, so it sounds like if in a situation where uh, the man is uh, has a lower sex drive or maybe a man has re- repeatedly been in relationships where he finds he has a lower sex drive he actually maybe should talk to a doctor just to check it sounds like that's like that could be a medical issue like it's cuz it's a little bit unusual it sounds like that's what i'm hearing that's interesting yeah i mean look it's 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 interesting but um i i see a lot of patients in endocrinology and all endocrinologists do who are referred in specifically because they're concerned about having low libido we, we, we much less often see women referred to endocrinologists for low libido. They often see sexual therapists and other people. Um, so they don't see it as much as a medical problem. But for men, um, when they have low libido, they're often referred to an endocrinologist, check their testosterone levels because it is seen as something that isn't usual. And, and, and to be fair, the average young man does have a high sex drive. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that someone who doesn't is abnormal as such, but it is a typical feature of young men that they're very highly sexed. Teenage men. What if you know none of us? What, what if it's what if it's? Uh, I mean, I think a more well. Okay, but I think both are somewhat common. Obviously, you in your practice have men uh, with truly low libido. Um, I've encountered uh, situations where a man doesn't really have a low libido. He just, I, I think it pro- might just have like access. It uh, might have relationship to easy access to porn on the internet. Uh, that simply. There, there's too much variety or something like that uh, of, of visual stimulation available. And so they don't have a low libido. They just don't want to have sex with their partner that much. Is that something you've encountered? Um, <clears throat> I mean, yes, absolutely. There are, you know, there's lots of different kinds of sexual issues and that's, that would be one of them. And I think okay. that, um, you know, there's some men, I, I, I'll tell you a really bizarre story. Um, I saw a, a doctor as a patient. So the doctor came to see me and he said to me, you know, I, I've been having some problems getting an erection with my wife. And I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. And he said, well, what I did was I went to a glamorous prostitute. And he said, and the equipment okay. worked absolutely perfectly. So I just said, well, I don't think it's your testosterone level. I can test it, but it sounds like the, the equipment worked with that woman. Then it's not. Then it might be an issue with your marriage or something to do with you and your wife, but it doesn't sound like it's a physical issue. So I literally saw a patient who said that to me. So, I mean, it's, you know, things come in all shapes Wait, and forms. Wait, well, what happened? You suggested relationship work. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, he, he was medically normal. His testosterone levels were normal. And I said to him, I think maybe you need to work on your relationship and you can start by not telling your wife what you did because I think that would be a really bad place to start. Honey, it's not me, it's you. <laughs> you know, I tested it out. It's definitely you. So I don't think that would be a great place to start. So I, I don't know what became of him because I don't, you know, I don't follow up these kinds of issues. He came to see me for a medical clearance and I said, you're medically normal, but I think you need to get some help with this. Yeah, you may need uh, some psychological work there. That's interesting. Yeah, and that's that is not the first thing that would occur to me in that situation to to test out the equipment with so a prostitute. You, there you go. But, well, I'll tell you something really fascinating as well. Um, this is bizarre from Australia. I know it's the same in the states, but you, you might be thinking, hey, he needs to also go and get you know a sexually transmitted disease clearance after that. So here's a here's a weird thing in Australia. Um, prostitutes. Uh, well, I don't know if you call them that anymore. What we call them. Sex healthcare workers. I don't know what the right sex term workers, is. Sex workers, yeah. Sex workers, that's it. Okay. Yeah. Um, sex workers have lower rates of STDs than the average population in Australia because they actually practice safer sex. How, how sure. unusual is that? Yeah, and they're tested. And well, I, I imagine that's partly, that probably is probably, it's, it's, it's uh, sex work is legal in Australia, right? It's legal and regulated. Yes. Yeah. So in the, in the US, it's I know, not. I, I have to so. tell you. I, th- no. I I think so. Yes, I, I don't. I, I genuinely, I'm not uh, trying to put on airs, but I really don't know much too much about the industry. It's not one that I, you know, know anything about. So I, but I mean, it's certainly, you know, if it's if it's not legal, it's certainly tolerated. But I think it's legal, as far as I know. Right, and that well, that would uh, set up. I mean, I know that the in the United States, the only place where it's legal is in the state of Nevada, where they have brothels, and uh, my understanding is the STD risk is. Uh, prevalence is quite low there because they have all these yeah. testing regimens and they're required to use condoms and blah, 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 blah. There, there are various things that, that, uh, that protect them. Um, have you, uh, what, what are, what are some things that a man, are there other things besides low libido or sort of changed libido that might make it so a man should check for his, for, have his testosterone checked? Yeah, look, there's lots of symptoms. So, so, for example, men with low testosterone can get hot flushes, like women get postmenopausally. They often feel very tired. They just have very little energy. They lose their vitality. Um, they sometimes just become grumpy and miserable. Um, and some of them also become a lot more passive. So all those things would, would be concerning and also you know, loss of libido, particularly you know, in a medical problem, someone who lost their libido. So I saw... As, as an example, you're saying, like, should people seek medical help? And, you know, I saw a, an 80-year-old German man who came to see me about his osteoporosis, brittle bone disease. And he was referred to me because his specialists had been looking after him. They couldn't understand why his bones were getting worse despite medical treatment. And when I spoke to him, I said, well, you know, do you still have a sex drive? He said, no. So I said, well, when did you last have a sex drive? He said, 50 years ago. So I said, wow. So when you were 30. So um, I asked him about that, and he was normal growing up. And then at age 30, he just completely lost his his libido, and he never okay. sought any help for it. 50 years later, he came to see me. So I um, examined him, and he had testicles that were literally the size of sesame seeds. Not figuratively, literally. I struggled to find them, and I was very worried because you want to check that they're not undescended. So um, I tested his testosterone levels. They were basically zero. And so I put him on testosterone. I said, I had a long chat to him and his wife, and he was a keen goal for this guy. 
So his wife was going, oh, did you mention something about latent prostate cancer? And he just went, will I hit the golf ball further? I said, you will. And he said, I want it. I want it now. Because, of course, taking testosterone <laughs> makes you stronger. So then he, he, sure. he came back to see me for a follow-up. And I said to him, how are things going? And he looked, he didn't look happy at all. So I thought, oh, dear, something's gone wrong. Must be his golf. So I said to him, what, what's happened? He said, he told me his long game is excellent. He's hitting the ball miles. But every time he gets on the green, he gets an erection and he can't putt. So I said, wow, okay. <laughs> so I said, and, how, and then he and his wife were a bit sort of agitated because they were, his sex drive actually had returned. And he, was, and he couldn't quite get it right in the bedroom. So, I mean, I gave him practical advice. I said, look, take your wife to the golf course, to the green late at night, because you obviously have no trouble getting an erection on the green when you're putting. So just <laughs> take her to the golf course. So uh, I adjusted his testosterone, and he and his wife were very, very happy. And they came back to see me for another follow-up, and they were actually sexually active again after 50 years. Very excited, a bit too excited, because really I, I do get great delight out of helping my patients, but I'm not always sure that 80-year-old sex stories are that exciting for a doctor. There's things we don't need to know about. Some, right, that's a good message right. to patients generally. There's some things doctors actually don't need to know about. But anyhow, they were very excited. They went away very happy. So it was an, another life saved. I think in all cases, an 80-year-old is a person where it's acceptable to tell him to put his penis away. If it's out, that's not. Nobody <laughs> wants to see an 80-year-old man's penis. There, there I'm completely in agreement. Um, okay, well, well, after, well, that's about an hour. Of, yep, after, 50, after 50 years of after 50 years of celibacy in this particular case, that was actually the opposite. His wife was very excited, so um, didn't tell him to put it away at all. Really, even she though was she was also presumably, she was also presumably 80 years old or around there. Yeah, but I mean, they hadn't had sex for 50 years, so something very wow. novel and something very exciting for her. Okay, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I was try- as I was trying to say, it's been, it's been about an hour, so why don't we leave it there? Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Ricky. That was uh, informative and entertaining. I really appreciated talking to you. Um, as I mentioned it's, at the beginning of the show, thank you, thank you for sure. Uh, Ricky has a book and um, a podcast that we will link to in the show notes so people can check those out. Um, and as always, um, people can send us feedback at ymmvpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at ymmvpod. And uh, thank you for listening to Your Mileage May Vary. We'll be back next week. Thanks. Je me goûte.